Hello, and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's the classic known as Jaws. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover a C for a classic, I for an indie, N for new, E for an egregious film, M for a masterpiece of a film, and A for an atypical film. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I'm Thomas here, uh, the captain of the vessel known as the Orca, which is not just chasing bluegills and tommy cats. <laughs> uh, and I'm Brian, and I'm I'm certifiable Quint. It's a great line in the movie. Yes, for sure. Uh, but welcome everyone to the first ever episode of Cinema to the Letter. This is the former home of Double Edge Double Bill, and you know I decided to start this up with Brian. Uh, everybody, this is Brian. Hello. His first time on the main feed. Patrons have already met him. Yes. Because uh, he's special like that. He's special <laughs> out there. If you pay that one dollar, be Brian early. <laughs> but uh, welcome Brian to the main feed. How's it feel being on a main feed of a podcast now? Ah, uh-huh, yeah, it feels great. I'm I'm super excited, especially to talk about a great movie today. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll be talking about a great film here. Um, but you know what? Let, we kind of explained this a bit in our intro that I prepared together. But uh, given this is the first episode of the show, we should mention that uh, this new show is a bit different than the former show that used to be on here. Basically, uh, what our plan is, uh, we're going to have six-episode miniseries uh, where we have a basic topic overall for the miniseries. In this case, uh, the first miniseries is going to be about blockbusters. And during each of the six episodes, we're going to cover a movie that we feel kind of hits the criteria of the acronym for cinema. Classic, we're defining as pre-1980, uh, even though as time looms ever further on, 1980 becomes more and more of a classic era, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, we just wanted to cover, you know, some movies that were made before 1980 that would, like, not be in your Netflix algorithms and such. They're considered old, quote-unquote. Um, and then indie, we you know decided on like a movie that was made for less than ten million dollars, didn't have much studio backing. And then end for new, we decided would be you know something from like twenty twenty forward, basically as roughly a new era, yeah. as you could say. Um, then uh, um, the egregiouses are bad. We have to cover a bad as we did on the former show. Um, the M is for a more modern masterpiece. We determined so nineteen eighty through like twenty nineteen, as it were. And then the uh, A for atypical, which would just be like a weirder one, a more bizarre or underrated one. And uh, we should mention, we've already picked out all the movies for this. Uh, We'll go ahead and give you the lineup. Uh, We're covering today the C for classic, which will be Jaws, which was partially picked by our patrons over at patreon.com slash cinema number two letter. Uh, which is going to be our social media from here on, um, cinema number two letter. Then for our I for Indie, next week we'll be covering The Blair Witch Project. Yes. Uh, Then uh, the N for New is going to be Tenet, the Christopher Nolan very recent film, uh, prior to, of course, Oppenheimer, which has not come out yet as of the time this is getting put out, uh, but will be coming out soon. 
Um, then the E for Egregious is going to be Van Helsing, the Stephen Summers film. Um, the more modern M for Masterpiece is going to be Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And then our atypical, sort of weird underrated one is going to be Last Action Hero. Yes, it's a great lineup. It's a great starting lineup. Yes, and we decided to do blockbusters because obviously this is coming out in the summer when we're premiering here. And I'm curious, Brian, given, you know, we're talking about the movie that many would argue is like the creation of the summer blockbuster. What do you feel like defines sort of like a classic version of a blockbuster to you? When you think of like, oh, classic blockbuster, not necessarily a specific title, but the kind of feeling that you sure. get from that. Because we're two uh, cynical film fans who aren't as especially kind to say like the modern blockbuster era. Yes. <laughs> necessarily. But what do you think of when you think of like a classic blockbuster? Um, you know, it's funny because I was rewatching Jaws again today. Like, it is just such a, a perfect kind of classic blockbuster. There, there's something about the movie that is like, it, it feels kind of small in a way especially compared to movies today but uh, it is there's something interesting about the way that the kind of for like you don't i mean the classic thing is you don't see the shark for like 90 percent of the movie yeah i don't know there is something I, i can't quite put my finger on it but really like just classic feeling about this movie well, I mean, in terms of, like, generally with, like, a classic blockbuster, to me, I agree with you, like, that, that the sort of limitations element is definitely there, where, like, any sort of blockbuster, especially, like, you know, before Jaws, there were big, giant spectacle movies. They just didn't really come out specifically in the summer. If anything, they kind of waited till like, near the end of the year, or would even go through, like, the roadshow process, right. where they would be like, oh, hey, we're going to come out in early sort of screenings in July, and then be in theaters all the way through, like... The next year, basically, yeah. we tour around the country with our five prints that we have. Um, with like, you know, the the classic blockbuster to me, at least, it feels like movies that really want to convey that kind of grand spectacle, but do have limitation. I think that's definitely been a problem in the wake of like, you know, sort of modern CG stuff. It's a common complaint of like, oh, when you can really do anything, quote unquote, it makes the spectacle feel a lot less heartfelt and soulful. And I think that's definitely a thing, especially in Jaws, where that was such a big problem with the production. Being They didn't end up being able to do like all the things they wanted, and that necessity is the mother of invention thing kicks in. Which, you know, we'll be talking about an indie movie where they had to deal with like very limited resources versus like even a classic movie. You can still see that like there are limitations to what you can do, especially in this older time period. Yeah, and I mean, we should also... I mean, it, it is funny because this is a movie made by one of the greatest filmmakers of the past, you know, many years, you want to say. I, I mean, you really get a sense for, like, how great, because this is his his second movie? Is that right? Spielberg. I mean, yeah, if you don't want to count, like, there's a whole process, but this is his second theatrical film after right. the Sugarland Express. Sure. Was the first one, yeah. Yeah, but you, you get a, a really clear sense of how good Spielberg is as a filmmaker when he has to you know, deal with all of this, uh, you know, the, I mean, we'll talk about a bit of the behind the scenes stuff, uh, about the movie, but sort of my favorite part of this movie in a weird way is Spielberg's direction, which I know is kind of weird to say. So I, I'm kind of curious, actually, when, when did you first see Jaws? Were you, did you see it pretty young? Well, well, you know what, we'll get into this. Let's first say, let's play a bit of a clip from the trailer. Oh, yes. Here's a bit of the trailer for Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution. 
without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. Rated PG. Maybe too intense for younger children. So yes, uh, Jaws came out June 20th, 1975. Interesting, we're recording this June 21st. Yeah. So we're recording it like almost 48 years to the day. Yeah. When we originally came out. I, I like, a few days ago, I kept seeing like anniversary tweets for Jaws and I was like, oh my gosh, it's, it also is just crazy to think that it's almost 50 years old at this point. Yeah. It's crazy it, to think. Yeah. But um, Jaws, of course, like you were kind of teasing before we, uh, started uh playing the trailer here about like the relationship with jaws because obviously both of us were not around yeah. for 1975 <laughs> uh when this movie came out we're, we're youngins uh in that way um but uh for me jaws i remember very clearly was a movie that one of many movies my father exposed me to at an early age it right. wasn't probably the first spielberg movie i watched i think the first ones of those were like E.T. or the Indiana Jones movies. Sure. I probably watched before I watched Jaws, but Jaws was definitely one where he had us watch it at too young an age. I was eight, and I had like two younger sisters. Um, so uh, we weren't necessarily... And, we, and keep in mind, we lived in Florida. Right. So, so we went to the beach every summer. <laughs> right. And so this was like pretty early, I think, in the summer when I was eight years old. And it's just like, hey, here's Jaws. All right, and then like in a week we're gonna go on a fucking beach vacation. I'm sure that'll be fun. Great, and we'll want to totally go in the water. Um, but yeah, I just remember this definitely being a, an example of like, despite I became like a huge horror fan after a certain point, this is one of the early examples of I was a scaredy cat. But then eventually I had that fascination enough to like why I wanted to revisit some of these horror movies and it got me into the horror genre. So it's kind of a gateway drug. It's weird given it is a PG rated movie. It is. It, it. I will say though, like, it, there are some moments where I'm like, "Oh wow, this is violent." I mean, like, immediately comes to mind is like Quint's death is like so violent, violent, just deeply upsetting as well. Just seeing that character go the way that he goes is like, oh, he's in like desperate clinging pain. Yeah, and he's like, it's, like this really tough dude. Just like, it's yeah, he's becoming like a screaming, wailing, pathetic child in yeah. death, as we all eventually will. But. Um, <laughs> It's, it's it's interesting, yeah. But what about you? What's your relationship with Jaws? When did you first see it? You know, it's interesting because I, I never saw it when I was young at all. And it was always like, you know, the kind of classic movie. Like, you know, it, it kind of, I think you, I kind of knew of Jaws, obviously, through just like cultural osmosis and through like just so many parodies that, you know, movies and shows have done over the years. But I first saw it, I think I saw it when I was a teenager, probably. And I don't think it was the first, like, Spielberg I ever saw. That I, I feel like the first Spielberg I saw was Jurassic Park. But I, I remember seeing it, and just everything about it sort of immediately clicked. as like, oh yeah, this is just a classic film. It's weird how familiar it feels to me, even though I've only seen it, like, once or twice. But it, it has become a movie that I... I absolutely love i mean just watching it today i was like this is a fantastic movie 
I mean, yeah, this definitely feels like a movie where I, I'm i sure I saw parodies of this prior to watching Jaws. I can think of um, Spongebob in particular. There's yes. the episode <laughs> where they had to try and face off against the giant clam. And Sandy does, like, the whole Quint thing. Right. It's a beat-for-beat beat parody of Jaws down to, I think, isn't that the one where Mr. Krabs also does, like, the orchestra thing? And it sounds very suspiciously similar I th- to Jaws and shit like that. I think... Or there's there's another episode. There's, there's plenty of SpongeBob episodes where they reference Jaws. Yes, the one, not, like, the one I'm thinking exclusive. of is, like, is, there's a giant, like, worm. And, like, yes. Sandy does the, like you know, nails on a chalkboard. And she's like, I'll catch that worm for ya. I don't know. I, I had seen so many of the like parodies that by the time I saw it, it was kind of, I watched the movie and I was like, oh, that's, that's the classic like scene or that's the classic line. We should mention this. Um, we're recording this on Zoom and Brian has a picture <laughs> of one of the many Simpsons parodies of Jaws. Yes. Uh, in which the sea captain is clutched in Jaws's mouth. Uh, that This is definitely one of those movies kind of like the Simpsons writers joked often about, like, you could piece together the entirety of Citizen Kane through parodies on the Simpsons. Yes. You can do pretty much the same with, like, parodies of Jaws from various different productions and whatnot. And I think that was the big thing is, like, this movie also felt like um, an early example of me getting into, like, a film nerd obsessive movie that sure. is referenced constantly even after this, where I would see, say, uh, Kevin Smith does a lot of homages to Jaws in his various films, which I know you're not at all familiar with, because that's definitely, that, that shows our, a bit of our gap. It does, a little bit. I, I have seen nothing of Kevin Smith. Which is fascinating to me, and I think that that might be rectified at some point in this I don't know if rectified's the right word. I have a very complicated relationship <laughs> with that man's films. But um, th- th- this was definitely one of those where, like, so much of it is seeped into the pop culture lexicon that it becomes kind of a language onto itself. Yeah. Even just small, simple things. Like, um, I just recently saw uh, No Hard Feelings, oh. uh, the um, you know, the Jennifer Lawrence movie. Right. Very funny movie. Kind of getting mediocre reviews. I think that movie deserves a bit better. But there's a point where they make a Jaws joke... And then the actor, like, has to strip down, the main, like, uh, uh, male lead. And he strips down, and his underwear is covered in anchors. Okay. And that instantly just gives a Jaws connection right. with, like, Murray Hamilton's character. Yes. Of his amazing suit covered in anchors. It's a great jacket. I want that jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, let's get a bit more into the film itself. Yeah. Uh, which, as I mentioned, came out in the, the summer of 1975 from director Steven Spielberg. He made a lot of television before this. Like, he, he had directed the pilot for Columbo. Yes. Um, and he had done, you know, some TV movies, uh, an episode of Night Gallery with Joan Crawford, some of that stuff. And then The Sugarland Express, which had come out the previous year and was kind of, like, received in a lukewarm kind of way and wasn't, like, a huge smash. Uh, but... It is fascinating realizing that he made this movie at, like, 27. I was, Yeah, I was trying to do the math last night, where I was like, how old was he when he made this movie? And, I mean, yeah, like, it's interesting that he, like, had come from that TV background and had, like, kind of already, like, made a lot of, a lot of things, and so had that experience to, to come in and make Jaws, and you just, like, uh, have you seen The Sugarland Express, right? I have seen the Sugarland Express. I, yes, I really like that movie a lot. That's a great movie. I think yeah, it's it's underrated in terms of like the sort of Spielberg lexicon. It's very different from a lot of his other movies too. That's the one that feels the most sort of like seventies auteur driven. Yeah, as it were, from like that particular era. Uh, and it definitely feels like he's more recalling some of his 
stuff that like Robert Altman would do and stuff like that. Yeah. And it feels mm-hmm. a lot more kind of grounded character focused. Um, but I think you can see even the seeds from there of like what would happen in a Jaws. And of course, some of his TV work in particular, I think we'll be talking about one of those in a segment. Yes, we so will. So put a pin in that. Yes. About one of uh, the, the sort of direct correlation. One of the main reasons why Spielberg even wanted to do this was it was very similar to a TV film he had done previously. But it, it is still amazing that he did this at such a young age. And it's especially fascinating if you watch any behind the scenes stuff filmed at Martha's Vineyard. Where if you know anything about the production of this movie, it was chaotic and definitely not something, say, a 27-year-old man could probably handle. <laughs> With especially all these, like, experienced actors and veteran crew members and just, like, it, you can feel the weight of it on him. There's a great uh, featurette on the Blu-ray that's just, like, on the set of Jaws. And it's him being interviewed and he just looks like he has so much panic in his eyes. He's just, like, barely keeping it together. We're just like, oh, yeah, you know, we're shooting this and this. And you can tell inside, he's just like, I'm fucking freaking out. They, they show, like, a bit in that behind the scenes where he's filming, like, the original version of the Ben Gardner, like, uh, finding his capsized boat. Oh, the right, version that wasn't in, in the movie. When they go in at night? Well, that's the thing, is that in this footage that was shown, it was shot during the day. The original version. Huh. That I guess he ended up reshooting over. It's interesting seeing that bit. Uh, but he says, like, you know, this is our second day at sea. I have 54 more days left. Jesus. It's like, oh, Stevie. Stevie, Stevie. Especially, it's weird realizing this is the first studio production actually shot on the ocean, which is interesting. That is interesting. Like, whenever you see older movies that are shot on water, it tends to be like a giant tank in a studio. Yeah, thinking of, like, early Bond movies, the way that, like, they would, quote-unquote, shoot underwater, like, um... What's the one of the, like Thunderball or something? But yeah, Thunderball is the big one where they shoot underwater. Yeah, and, or even earlier than that, you have like the Disney Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Right, I've never like that, that I, was shot in, like actual. I've actually never seen that movie. It's an interesting movie. It definitely yeah. also it feels definitely like a movie that I could tell Spielberg probably saw at a young age and inspired a lot of stuff from this movie. Sure, yeah, especially like, sort of like the seafaring elements of it. Kirk Douglas even feels like the more Disneyfied version of a Quint in that movie. Okay, um, there's there, um, though this movie does not have a fun uh, sea lion uh, sidekick <laughs> for them to play around with, which is a shame. I think that's a real loss <laughs> for this movie. But there's no sea lion that goes herb herb. <laughs> And everything. Real disappointment. It's definitely like a young Spielberg coming into this. And we won't go through the whole history of the movie because it's been well documented in various other places. But roughly, um, Spielberg was given this by uh, the producers David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck, who you know needed a, somebody to direct this movie based on the Peter Benchley novel, which was very successful. I have not read the Peter Benchley novel, so I can't really judge it. Yeah, I haven't either. I assume Okay. Yeah, because um, all the stuff that I know is stuff that they apparently cut out of this movie, which I'm kind of glad they did. Like, apparently, there was a whole subplot in the book that involves uh, Hooper and Mrs. Brody having an affair. Oh. But I'm like, I don't get how that would even, like, work. Really, yeah. In the context of, like, this. It's, like, not even just, like, oh, it betrays the characters. Like, this movie's just too, like, compact in terms of how many days it takes place over. Yeah. For them to have, like, an affair. Because I think, what, Hooper's on the island, like, 48 hours before they even he is. go out to have their adventure. Yeah. I mean, there's, like, the one scene where he goes and, like, has dinner with them, which is a great scene. I love that, like, that scene so much. But, um, yeah, it's a weird plot line. Yeah, yeah, that's one of many things that they changed here. But yeah, apparently um, Spielberg did want to do this. Uh, was offered this role of direct was offered to direct this movie, and he was very f- curious about it. He went through various different sort of production things with who he was going to cast, and ultimately we got Roy Scheider as Brody, our our main lead. Um, we got uh, Richard Dreyfuss as uh, Hooper, 
Um, and then we've got, of course, Robert Shaw as Quint. And um, what's, what's so fascinating is hearing, like, I this was one of the early examples of, like, finding out about the production of this movie. A very early sort of urtext for me getting into, like, the background of film is watching the making of Jaws, not on a DVD, but on the second VHS, because my dad had, like, the two VHS collection. Oh, interesting. On the second tape, there was a two-hour documentary that's on the Blu-ray now and stuff like that from, like, the 90s of... Um, you know, the making of Jaws, and it's like everybody being interviewed, and the whole history is fascinating, but basically TLDR, um, everybody went to Martha's Vineyard with these various different giant sharks that were tested originally in freshwater, these animatronic sharks that were totally going to work, um, except when they got into freshwater, into seawater, uh, everyone realized, oh, no, wait, we didn't test this correctly, and the sharks aren't working. So all the plans they had for these sharks had to be very limited, as uh, any time, you know, the shark had would like pop up it would screw up and then there would be massive delays which this movie ended up having massive delays over i think like it was supposed to be like a month or two long shoot ended up being like a four or five month shoot jesus basically just like it's a giant massive disaster and there were conflicts on set particularly with richard dreyfus and robert chat i know richard <laughs> dreyfus being difficult with people never heard it before the least surprising thing i've heard about this movie <laughs> <laughs> is that Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw did not get along. But then there's there's also just like all the other weird stuff that I didn't even know that wasn't even in that documentary. Like apparently Robert Shaw had tax problems and would often go from like Martha's Vineyard up to Canada to avoid <laughs> tax people. And shit like that. So that's just another thing where like one year leads us to go up there. And also he was a massive drunk. So he was definitely like drunk all the time on set and stuff like that. So just a lot of problems happening throughout the entire production. And uh, they had to severely edit it and go through a lot of post-production stuff. Um, and then it became the greatest fucking movie that grossed so much money ever made. Yeah. You know, it's it's so funny to think that like, you know, going through the kind of behind the scenes stuff and hearing about all the problems because like... I don't know, if you didn't know, none of that would come off on screen, because everything about the movie is so... I mean, you called it compact. It is. It's such a, like, brisk movie, almost, even though it's two hours long. You know, no part of it feels as, like, no part of it screams, like, disaster was happening behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, we have that all the time now, where, like, troubled production rumors swill around a movie, and that kind of, like, dampens the movie to a certain extent. That was even the case with Jaws. Like, there would have been you know, production difficulty, like, articles and stuff that come out in, like, Hollywood Reporter and Variety, places like that. But, you know, it just shows that, like, even massive production problems don't always mean a movie will be bad as a result. Yeah. That's often the case. Yeah. But there are exceptions, and Jaws is one of those big, huge exceptions. Yeah. My big question to start this off in terms of the movie for you is, um, who do you identify with most of our main trio? Who, like, immediately (laughs) is just like, that's... The guy I identify with the most it's, of these three. It's what they're all all three all three of these these boys are so great. I, I love Roy Scheider. I, I feel like he's one of those seventies actors that doesn't get as much credit as he uh, should. Um, I like just watched um, all that jazz for the first time like a couple days ago, and he's mm-hmm. so great in that movie. But I I do kind of like Richard Dreyfuss's his attempts when he, they're like talking to the mayor and you know the mayor's just like nope fourth of july weekend we're gonna keep it going and richard dreyfus just starts like laughing because he knows just how like stupid this guy is being um I, so i think i definitely re- related to that um 
but I also just love Quint because he's like kind of insane <laughs> and kind of weird. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. The Dreyfus really Dreyfus is really good in this movie as well. I, I really like him. Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say I probably do relate more to Brody, if anything else, because Brody is such a fascinating, like, lead for a big blockbuster movie, where especially nowadays, if you have a lead in a blockbuster movie, he has to be the toughest guy possible, and he has to, like, if he has any vulnerability, it's very, like, overt, and has to be part of the plot, basically, that he has, like, a dead wife or something like that, as opposed to, like, Brody is this guy who just feels very much like a dad, he is, yeah. He's just, like, a good dad. <laughs> right. He's a good dad, and also, like, it's Roy Scheider, who is one of the most leathery men <laughs> to ever, like, really be is. in movies. Yeah. Like, just the, the way that his, like, face creases and stuff, like, <laughs> smiles or frowns or anything like that, it just, like, it tells a whole story. Yeah. And I just feel like all that insecurity that he has, like, one of my favorite bits is during the scar scene, which is so great, where you have Hooper and Quint trading off, like, oh, there's, I got this scar and this scar, and you know Brody has a scar. Yeah, he, like, lifts up his shirt. shot. Right, yeah, and he was, they established he'd been shot back when he was in uh, New York City as a cop, and then moved out to Amity, which takes place presumably in, like, um, like the shores of, like, eastern New York State, basically. Yeah, they mentioned, like, Nantucket and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what I love is just that, like, he knows that, and he kind of, like, looks around, and he's just like, do I show them my scar? And he's like, no, yeah. this is my thing. Like, this is a dude who's, like, gone through so much, and he has clear, like, a, a emotional attachment to these things but at the same time he's like i can keep certain things close to the vest i'm not going to be in the middle of this dick measuring contest he plays a really great like sheriff or like whatever he is he has just this like stoicism and he, you know you trust brody as a character to like do the right thing because of of roy scheider he's he's great he's a really great actor yeah and i think you feel especially a lot of sort of the great early examples of uh spielberg being able to like pick out certain details for his characters like early on i love like how amity feels like a real location in this movie yeah. and it's all because of how everyone interacts with roy scheider where you've got you know the whole like oh these kids are karateing up the fences <laughs> and so like like that's their biggest concern even like the mayor later on it's just like hey, look, these kids are destroying my fences i don't know what's going on like they're also like want to have these like smaller scapegoat problems that are going on uh, that feel like, oh, this is what matters here in Amity. Not like a big shark attack. That doesn't happen here. Yeah. We're all chill in this beach town. Nothing, that's not what matters. And I think that all comes through like Roy Scheider, who knows what like massive upsetting things are from working in New York City and then coming to this place. He wanted to like basically retire and be like, I want to have a less stressful fucking thing happening for me. And now there's a shark. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, he treats that threat seriously. So he's such a great everyman kind of character where it's like, look, I wanted to relax, but I'm not relaxing while there's this giant threat out there that's killing everybody. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in in the movie is the first scene that he has with, uh, the first like conversation he has with the mayor, which is on like the raft. I mean, one of the many things I love about this movie is like the the way it's shot and the way Spielberg I mean, he does like these really long takes, but in like that scene is such a, it's just all on the raft and it's, you can see all of like his like cronies in the background and stuff. And basically him telling him like, we're not going to freak out. This is fine. Everything is fine. We're going to be open. And yeah, he, he really sells that scene. He's, he's really great. You yell Barracuda. Everyone says, what? Yeah. Who? 
You yell shark. We have a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Yeah. Um, it's Murray Hamilton doing an amazing job of instilling severe skepticism in me of elected officials uh, very early on uh, when I watched this. I still remember like the scene with uh, the Kittner mom later on and her like completely destroying Brody. Oh instantaneously God, yeah. put that kind of like anger in me about like, but that's not his fault. It's the mayor's fault. Right. From a very young age. So once again, elected officials on site it, do not trust. Yeah. It's very, it is very funny watching this movie now and thinking, Hmm. I wonder what modern, uh, events may, you know, this, this relates to in terms of like shutting things down and stuff like that. And I, I do love the scene later when, it's sort of after the like Fourth of July attack, and when he goes in like the hospital with the mayor, and he's kind of telling him like I told you so, and the mayor kind of he says this line that's like it's kind of devastating, but like you still hate him. Where he's like, my son was on the beach too, and it is just this line where I'm like, oh, I have I have some sympathy for you, but you're still such an asshole. Right. That's the thing is that Spielberg at his best, tends to make even his villain characters very human. Yeah. In a weird way, and I think that's what's really fascinating, but you can see it here, and it, like, progresses forward with many of his different villain characters where you don't necessarily think, like, oh, this guy's not so bad, but it's just like, no, this is a recognizable kind of evil. That kind of banality of evil, where it's just like, look, I'm here to help out the town. I need to make sure we get our summer dollars. This is where we get all our money, and all this other stuff. And even, like, the scene where it's um, Brody, the mayor, and Hooper arguing in front of the giant uh, freaking billboard. Oh my god, yeah, that... With just, like, where his main concern is just like, I need to know who's graffitiing right, yes. on my billboard <laughs> over here. Yeah, and I mean, like... Even the scene that's like you were talking, you were talking about like Amity feeling like a real like place. There's the scene where like after the the like very first uh, shark attack, I believe, where like they're almost like doing like a town meeting sort of thing, and Brody kind of he's he's the one who says that they're shutting down, and everyone is like upset, and it's kind of a thing where you you I, I was almost like I'm like oh yeah they're upset that they're shutting down because this is like their it's their community. And yeah, it, it is. It, it adds a sense of of place to to amity, which is which is great. Right, and even like the very recognizable sort of figures that show up, like in that scene, you also have um, one of my favorites, the one lady who's super over tanned, who is constantly just like in these meeting halls, and like, <laughs> she actually appears in the Jaws sequels as like one of the main trustees of Amity. Who's just like, oh, this is a lady who spent her entire life on the beach. Is she the one who like elected officials is like? Is that three thousand going to be in cash or check? And is she the one who's like, I didn't think that was funny. <laughs> yes, I didn't think that was funny. Yes, her. She's so great. Um, but even that also that scene has one of my favorite ADR lines I hear no one talk about, but it's always stuck with me. It's like a really funny line where um, Brody says like, oh, "We're going to close down the beaches," and the mayor's like, "Only for twenty four hours." And then there's this one like random female voice who's just like, twenty four hours? That's like three weeks." Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the math works out for that shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do like how, like, they, the the fact that they cast a lot of regulars from Martha's Vineyard in this movie just, like, really shows off. Like, the Kittner mom, uh, Lee Fierro is her name. She was just, like, the lady who ran the local theater oh. over there in Martha's Vineyard. Or even the, my favorite's the guy uh, who plays Ben Gardner, um, who I believe his name was, uh, hold on, I have it here. 
Um, his name is. This is great radio. Yeah, I'm also. I'm looking as well. Uh, Craig Kingsbury. Yes, Craig Kingsbury, who um, plays Ben Gardner, and it's just this guy who's like such a salty fisherman. <laughs> um, he like and apparently was a lot of the basis for certain things that Quint says, like even the bluegills and Tommy Cots. That's literally a line that he apparently said during like the initial interview where Spielberg was interviewing him for like, oh yeah, you should be in the movie, um, and like that kind of like salty sea energy is yeah. so crucial to making Amity feel like a real place. All, all the fishermen are so like funny, in, yes. <laughs> just in the background because they're all like they they have these like thick Boston accents and they're all just, they're so funny. Like the one, it's when Hooper like first arrives and he's like, uh, Brody's like, you're you're there's too many people in that boat. Like those guys are hilarious. <laughs> What's also so fascinating about like even like a Quint is that despite the fact it's Robert Shaw who later. I would find out, of course, was like in, you know, the From Russia with Love right, and yeah. Man for All Seasons, a celebrated British character actor. When I saw this movie initially, I thought like, oh, this is some guy who was a local salty sea dog. <laughs> yeah, he looks who like Who was just that. in this movie. Yeah. He, he looks like that. He feels like that. Even there's the scenes where he's got like this little toady guy next to him. He's not in the movie that much, but like when he gets like the chalkboard scene, he's like right next to him. There's a deleted scene where he's like, I'm not going on that boat, Quint. Like... I see the two of them together. I'm like, these dudes have been fishing for years. Yeah. There's no way that's just a local Martha's Vineyard guy and this is an Academy Award nominated <laughs> British character actor. <laughs> no way. Um, but yeah, he even like infused that despite the fact that he's very much a caricature. You still just feel like, nope, this dude is a real life salty sea dog. Yeah, and he's really good. I mean, like the the scene where he's like explaining about the like the boat that went down during like world war two he's like it's a great scene and you indianapolis yes and you're like hooked on like every word because he's just like he sounds amazing and you're yeah you're just tuned into whatever this guy's saying one of my favorite deliveries in here is at the very tail end of that speech where he's like well, we delivered the bomb <laughs> just the <laughs> yeah. perfect punctuation point yeah. for that upsetting horrifying speech it's like but no we did our job all right so everyone could get murdered over there in hiroshima yeah I, we did it so it was all worth it right we did it so like even more people could get killed than that were killed senselessly by these sharks there was something a couple years ago even after all the infamous sequels which we'll we'll talk about in a bit, but where Spielberg was like, oh, you know, I always kind of wanted to see a movie about Quint on the Indianapolis, just like an actual Indianapolis movie. That'd be interesting. I'll say this of any kind of like, oh, let's do another movie related to Jaws. That's the best idea, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Cause <laughs> you sequelizing this movie doesn't make much sense, but I guess prequelizing it makes a certain amount of sense. I haven't seen any of the sequels. Um, I, I thought about it and then I, I realized that uh, they're probably terrible. I mean, am I right? <laughs> I mean, I guess we can get into this now briefly. <laughs> sure. Um, I have seen all the Jaws movies. Um, How many are and there? And I will say there are four. Jesus. Um, there, there are well, four overall three sequels, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, where you've got Jaws 2, um, which mostly takes place at Martha's Vineyard and does have a couple people reprise their roles like Lorraine Gray and Roy Scheider and Murray Hamilton. That movie feels very much kind of like, oh, we're retreading a lot of the same ground from the original Jaws, but also the kids are teenagers now. So, like, oh, there goes, like, the main kid um, who's off with, like, all his teenage friends, and they get caught in a Jaws 
situation out there, whatever. Um, Jaws 3D is very bad as well, um, but it has the novelty of being like weird early 80s 3D, which is very funny. Um, it has Dennis Quaid as like the adult <laughs> versions of one of the Brody kids, okay. which is also weird. Jaws the Revenge is fascinating to me. Um, I have the weird hot take where everyone thinks that's the worst one, one of the worst movies ever made. I think it's very bad, but I would say at least his the most interesting out of these Jaws sequels. In that, do you, do you know the premise at all of Jaws: The Revenge? I'm very curious if you know anything. I, the only thing I know about this movie is it's it's the one with Michael Caine, and it's where he right they like asked him about him about it years later, and he was like, "I wanted a yacht." <laughs> Well, you know, the, the quote that he said was that I have not seen Jaws 4, which I've heard is very terrible. However, I have seen the house that it's yes. on, and it is magnificent, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. Amazing quote. What is what is the plot of Jaws the Revenge? The plot of Jaws the Revenge, it centers around Lorraine Gray, uh, Brody's wife, who in this movie, it was it's revealed that like Brody died in like a, a, from a heart attack, but she claims, no, it's the shark that killed him, the fear is what killed him. <laughs> and then um, early on, one of the Brody kids dies. She's so grief-stricken and upset that the other one, who lives in the Bahamas now, is like, hey, Mom, why don't you come with us um, to the Bahamas and you can have a vacation and a romance with Michael Caine? And all this stuff. So like, okay, sure. And the shark that just killed her son travels to the Bahamas <laughs> and gets there before <laughs> she does and starts stalking them. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so the shark is very much like the tagline of that is like this time it's personal. <laughs> so they literally take that to its largest extent of like, yes, it is personal. This shark is out to specifically kill you. That's so and funny. So, it's funny. It's very much a bad movie. I would right. say it's a good movie, but I would say all of that stuff makes it interesting, including like, I think the biggest thing that makes at least my preferred of the sequels is that there's actually a pretty decent, like, middle-aged person romance between her and Michael Caine. Okay. I didn't really expect. I'm like, oh, this is different. This is interesting. Sure. <laughs> At least. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's still bad. And uh, they stopped. That was 87, and that was so bad they have not made any other, like, Jaws follow-ups officially. Uh, Universal hasn't, except for the ride. Did you ever ride the ride? I'm curious. Like, we haven't talked this much. Are you, like, were you much of a theme park person? <laughs> um... Not really. I, I've been to Universal, like, once or twice. I remember, like, I went right as they opened the, like, Harry Potter world. So I went to, like, that when I was, like, a teenager. So you stepped on the corpse of Amity. Because that's where the whole Amity section was in the Jaws ride. Was. Oh, really? Oh, that's... Yes. Huh. Uh, that's why, if, if you go by, like, right before you hit Harry Potter, there's the shark that's hanging down there that's like a tiger shark yeah. from this movie. Yeah. That's like the sort of marker, the memorial for the former Amity that used to be there. Oh. And the ride was basically just, like, you go on a tour of, like, the little Amity Island, which was weird, because you go through, like, a little kind of, like, miniature recreation. Like, it literally looks, like, very small, like, all the buildings and stuff. So you're like, I guess this Brody, like, very small. And he lives here? It's just like, is he a gnome size? Is that what this is? Yeah. I'm, just... I'm not sure. This is very odd. Uh, and then the shark attacks you while you're on, on the boat. Uh, I it's see. Like, oh, no, I'm like, the shark's attacking us. I'm looking at pictures of the of the ride on, on Google. It was a ride that I rode many times as a child and was very initially terrified by and then comically amused by as I got older and rode that ride. And theme park people have a weird obsession, which is like, oh, no, you can't tear this down. I loved it so much. Why? It's like, I rode that ride probably like a year or two before... They destroyed it for Harry Potter. I'm like, I get it. Guys, like, this <laughs> rides in rough shape. And I don't know if they have 
as much interest in preserving it. <laughs> uh, you can still go to uh, Universal Studios Japan and ride if you want. Oh, really? You know, book your book your Japan trip. Interesting. And ride the <laughs> Amity in Japan. Um, but anyway, anyway, we're getting far off track of the movie itself. Yes. Um, so, but we, we talked about uh, Brody quite a bit. And we were kind of talking about Quint. Let's talk about Hooper a bit more. Yes. I think Hooper is very interesting. Where like that sort of three person dynamic of uh, that trio. I think it's curious because it kind of feels like, you know, the three sort of pieces of man in terms of like, you know, like the, there's the ego who is like the guy who's in the middle ground between super ego and id, who I would argue is Brody. Right. Then Quint, I would argue is the id, which is the more like impulsive, almost like naturalistic, animalistic. And then, uh, the super ego who is like more trying to like work through logic, which I would argue is Hooper. And I think that trio is a perfect encapsulation of, like, those three kind of stages, as it were, of, like, a man's mind. Of just, like, oh, I want to be out there adventuring versus I want to study things logically or the middle. Just, like, guys, I don't know if we can do this that well. Yeah. We gotta keep ourselves in check about this. Yeah, no, that's great. I I mean, like, yeah, at the end when they're all three on the boat, uh, just especially when they're sort of in the heat of it, like, in one of the shark attacks, it you get a sense of, like, these three, like, their dynamics kind of working together, but also, like, clashing, and, yeah, I mean, speaking about, like, about Richard Dreyfus as as Hooper, a, a thing I love about this movie is that he is, like, he's the, like, expert brought in from, like, the outside, because he knows about sharks, and a thing I love that this movie do- doesn't do, which so many movies since do, is that the, like, expert and the, the, the like, sheriff kind of bash heads because you know he doesn't want someone from the outside telling him what to do it brody's very like open to to hooper he's like welcoming it, it, they don't feud ever which i i love in, in this movie yeah brody is the one who invited him onto the island yes right for some kind of like help at that point as opposed to like the mayor and everybody else who just does not want that around and i think hooper works so brilliantly as especially kind of like he's clearly like the younger of the three and he has that kind of like youthful, rebellious energy to him as like sort of a constant throughout this. But at the same time, he also has like more of an idea of like in theory what a shark can do and what like the parameters are. So when you have stuff like the tiger shark scene where anyone else would think like, oh, yeah, we, we caught a giant shark and it's all good and we're all over with this. And he points out the tiger shark leading to, of course, one of my favorite lines in the movie of the one guy reacting with, <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Which is amazing. It's so funny. So good. One of my favorite, like, one-line guy. I love the fact that, too, that guy has such a weird high-pitched, oh, what? <laughs> Even though when you hear him, he has, like, such a gravelly voice. Just like, what are you talking about? Tiger shark? That makes no sense. A what? <laughs> a what? Um, him, like, questioning and, like, giving us all, like, the parameters. Like, look, here's what we know about sharks. And here's, like, all the things that we can rule about, like, what this massive, almost megalodon version of a shark is with the Great White. So, like, it makes any of the stuff that feels like, oh, this is, like, outside of the realm of, like, what we know about sharks. It makes it all feel more real because, like, we have an expert who's, like, we can rule out all this other shit that's actually real. And this is, like, the weird shit that we have to contend with, like, a Quint in order to somewhat resolve. And I think that's that's what's so key is, like, he they never make him be, like, the, oh, you you have no idea what you're expecting kind of guy. As opposed to, like, look, I know what to expect. This ain't normal. Yeah. I, I, I do love, I mean, like, later on as well when, uh, sort of right before all three of them, like, go out on the boat when, um, 
like Quint is kind of like here tie this like not and you you get the sense that like Hooper he he know he knows his stuff he's not like an idiot the scene with Hooper and Brody and his wife when he like invites them over and he's he brings like the the two bottles of wine which is I really love that scene as well because it it's giving more character to to Hooper but also to both Brody and his wife and and he Richard Reif is really good in that scene as well the way he him and um what is her name the uh, uh Lorraine Gray the way that they are kind of like going off of each other and Brody just kind of like sits there and is like pouring the wine it's it's a great scene and by the way I apologize I just did this and I did this several times before it's actually Lorraine Gary Lorraine Gary my fault my bad Lorraine Gary yes okay. um who interestingly uh, didn't do a lot of acting beyond like she'd been in some TV stuff before this and was in the Jaws two and four and like a couple other things after this, um, but she is actually the wife of Sid Sheinberg, who was the guy who was running Universal at the time. Huh. Um, so huh. you might were like in some world, some people might figure like, oh, that's a nepotism thing. She's not that great an actress. It's not true because she's like genuinely very like down to earth in a way that fits with Roy Scheider. Yeah. And you feel the believability. Like, I love the scenes early on where it's like, oh, you gotta kind of get used to this place. And he does the whole, like, pack the cat. Yeah. Of a bad yad. And she's like, you fit right in. Yeah. It's just perfect. Like, you get a sense that these people have been married for a while. And even, like, the, the great scene where, like, the kids are out in a little pontoon boat thing. Yeah. <laughs> and she's looking through, like, the book. And it's like, look, they just want to play out there. It's fine. I'm not sure they would want to go in the ocean after what happened today. But they're just sitting there on the boat. Looks at the book and just... Michael, yeah. did you hear your father? Yeah, she feels very much like also a naturalistic mom. Yeah. That really bounces off Scheider quite well. I, I really, yeah, I love that scene because, one, it's it's hilarious, but I love it because it feels like a genuine human moment between these people just in this situation. Getting into more of like the family stuff, I love the scene with, with Brody and his son at the dinner table where he's like copying what he's doing. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite Brody lines is the bit where he's just like, give me a kiss. Why? Because I need it. Yeah. That feels get, like the most... Get out of here. Unbelievable, frustrated dad thing possible. <laughs> yeah. We've talked many times, uh, the two of us as friends, about like our love of Spielberg. And particularly, you really like sort of like the later Spielberg era. Yeah. And you see a lot of like the early hallmarks here that would end up coming back with like the sort of that, that late 90s to early 2000s era. You really dig so much. Can you see the early seeds of that in Jaws? Yeah. I mean, like... Most people, I feel like, might say that Spielberg, his kind of, like, that 80s run, that kind of late 70s and 80s run is his, like, peak. Right, because we all love 1941. (laughs) We do. We love 1941. We love love Always. We love... (laughs) But, um... Empire of the Sun, everyone's favorite, baby. (laughs) Um, But I really love that 2000s run that he does, and... Yeah, you 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 do get a sense for kind of what he values in terms of like the the story of the movie. There's a cynicism towards like you mentioned like elected officials in it. There's a scene on like the 4th of July where they there's the big kind of like everyone runs out of the beach when they think that there's a shark in the water. And um which it ends up just being like the kids. But um during that scene there's this like like the mob mentality of it all is like really taking over and you see like a guy like push a couple kids off a raft and like use the raft and like he will cut to a shot of like an an old person like just lying there and the these moments of like this is what people will do when they're panicked uh, there's a lot of that which 
obviously fits into a lot of his 2000s stuff, like Minority Report and uh, War of the Worlds and stuff like that. Um, so that aspect really jumped out to me, like watching this now and thinking of like later Spielberg. Well, especially when I think Spielberg kind of gets that Amblin label on him. Yeah. Uh, from a lot of people where it's like, oh, Spielberg is just like with whimsical, fantastical movies. And he's done plenty of those. Yes. But I don't think people like ever give Spielberg enough credit for the amount of like true, not necessarily cynicism, but like uh, the, the amount of stuff he puts in where like, oh, I only have this like big whimsical stuff because I know like the nature of like, what people can be, especially like in that mob mentality thing you're talking about, like in groups, people can be a terrifying thing. Yes. And I think like this movie does a great job early on of kind of expressing that, or even with like a group where you have like three different men in like a Brody, a Quentin, a Hooper, who individually all could be like, oh, these are like fun people I would want to like potentially be around for a bit, but you put them all in isolation on a boat and things get fucking crazy. <laughs> like, they can't, like, survive well enough when they're all on their own. And even with, like, the mom mentality here, like, it, it really lends credence to, you know, the, the modern sort of thing. Like, oh, why do we have to make art political? Why do we have to look for political things in art? Like, a movie's just a movie. There's no political angle. Even in, like, a rousing, fun movie like Jaws, there's an inherently political context of, like, this fear of, like, authority figures, not trusting experts in the situation as everything comes crumbling around. Like, you were referencing earlier in a joking matter like in a post-covid age jaws feels less and less like fun whimsical blockbuster it does and more of like a sobering <laughs> treatment of like oh this is what happened even down to i mentioned her earlier the lee fiero the kittner mom um she died of covid oh really yeah just an interesting little tie that kind of like i think even more cements that kind of like a thing that was true in 1975 and is true to now which is just like many like people at the top are not looking out for your best interest as much as the best interest of a quote-unquote greater good that isn't really, like, helping individuals out at all and leaving them out to sea. Yeah, and, and I think, like... Get it? Hey, get it? Get, I don't know if you got... <laughs> I, I'm waiting for my applause. How great that was. That was great. Like, and thank you. Really appreciate that. Continue with your whatever point you were making. Yeah, like you said, people kind of put that sort of, like, whimsical thing on Spielberg but I, I think it is because he is like ultimately like an optimist I think he does like eventually see the good in people uh, but but I think also a thing that people never really maybe give Spielberg enough credit for is how like gnarly some of his movies can be at times even this movie like I'm thinking of the like the first shark attack when you uh where they the the shark kills the the little boy and you see like just a figure above the water and then like just like some blood gushing out and it is this surprisingly like violent scene in in, in this movie right and i think it's also interesting just given you know this movie i think we can both agree it is a horror film some people try and debate that no it absolutely like, is. no it's an adventure like it, it, it can be a lot of things i think one of them mainly is horror and it's fascinating considering spielberg didn't really direct another horror movie after this I think, like, the closest one could argue is, like, a poltergeist, which he wrote and produced. Some say he directed. Right. Though I would still make the argument that that's very much a Toby Hooper film at the same time it's got Spielberg's touches on it. It does, yeah. But, yeah, you can see how, like, a lot of his later films still have that kind of, like, horrific edge where, like you mentioned, oh, he sees the best in individuals. I think that's the case. But he also sees the terror in, like, a group. Yeah. With, like, I could see so much of, especially, like, this is the first time I've seen this movie in a while since um, I revisited AI, 
and I gained my huge appreciation for AI artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, and you can see so many, tr- like, of, like, the horror sequences in that uh, feel about as, like, visceral and upsetting as, like, any of the sequences in Jaws. It's just those involve, like, robots with oil instead of, like, gore <laughs> that's coming all over the place. Yeah. Or, like, m- one of my favorite Spielberg films, like, of all time is War of the Worlds. And I, I think that is, like, maybe the closest he's come to since Jaws to making a horror movie because of, like, the nature of that. But, it, yeah, that movie has a lot of the same things as Jaws of, like, the, the like like you mentioned, the sort of people as a whole are, are not always going to, you know, be calm under pressure. Looking at, kind of, Spielberg's uh, career, like, do you hold Jaws as, like on high regard as high regard as his other films i'm curious i would say it is my favorite of spielberg's movies my top three spielberg's are jaws raiders and then catch me if you can i think those are like three like masterpieces from him like my tip top favorite three even though there are plenty of like great near perfect movies like around it right i just think those three movies do a great job of displaying like everything i love about spielberg in terms of like the the blockbuster like fun whimsical nature and then the terrifying elements of it and even a lot more of like the the darker themes that are handled especially about like family like even in this movie you do have that where you have like this family man brody who is like crumbling but trying to keep it together because like of his kids and of his, you know, his wife, and even being a sort of weird father figure to Amity, and trying to keep that together. Like, even, I I love the relationship he has with his deputy, uh, Jeffrey Kramer, in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> where there's, like, a bit of, like, a bumbling deputy nature to that guy, but at the same time, he, like, wants, like, the best for that dude, and he's still just constantly just like, I don't know, man, you gotta, like, do something, like, later on when, um, when Hooper first shows up. And you can see him like waving that's the, at Brody. That's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> so where he has like interest in like like preserving everybody, but he is like crumbling apart as like a guy who's like, I have to save everybody and I can't and I'm fucking freaking out. <laughs> and so like that. You can see like that stuff even ripples through as well, like those concerns about like a dad who wants to make it seem like everything's okay, but it's not, all the way down to like the Fablemans. Brody and Paul Dano. <laughs> have more in common than you would expect <laughs> yeah i i will say my 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 top three spielberg my number one i think will always be close encounters of the third kind my top two and three are always like switching uh right now i have et and jurassic park but yeah that's the thing is that, that dude has so many masterpieces that it's hard to kind of like narrow one down necessarily it is yeah um or even narrow three down but um so I guess uh, the other sort of the fourth lead of this movie we haven't really talked about that much is Bruce the Shark. Yeah, of course, as he was nicknamed on the set uh, because he was named after uh, Steven Spielberg's lawyer, allegedly. <laughs> fun lawyer joke. We all love him, you know, but it's so fun. Um, but he, as I mentioned, that shark would like constantly break down, sank to the bottom of Martha's Vineyard at one point while they were trying to shoot a shot, like all this chaos. And the the famous thing about this movie is that we were originally going to see more of the shark, uh, but it ended up being the case where, oh, through necessity, we have to not feature the shark that much and cut around it, thanks to Verna Fields, who won an Oscar for her editing in this movie, uh, one of the few surprising Oscars this was nominated for. There's a lot of stuff about this shark that, like, the, the few naysayers of Jaws, if, if they're going to nitpick anything, it's usually, like, the shark looks fake. A common thing. Even Robert Zemeckis made that joke in Back to the Future Part 2. 
with the shark still looks fake. Right, yeah. Jaws 19. Um, so, I'm curious, how do you feel about the shark, the few glimpses we get of Bruce? Do you feel that it looks that fake, or do you feel it still works for the movie? I find it really funny that people say that the shark looks bad in this movie, because it's like, it is one of those things of like, don't show it, and he, he really like, obviously because of the production, like, doesn't show the shark so many times, and... I think that that, because you don't see it that often, when you do see it, it creates this like almost awe or wonder where you're like, oh my gosh, there's there's the shark. And I, I don't know, I think it still looks great. I mean, it, the fact that it is this like analog visual effect, that it's like a real like big thing, I, I still think it looks really great. And I love that all of the like early on before we ever see the shark, that all the sh- most of the shots are like POVs of the shark. Like, from the shark's perspective? Yeah, I think if we saw more of the shark, I could get having that complaint. Because if you watch any of the behind-the-scenes material, like, during the great, like, chum some of this shit, and then the shark pops up thing, if they stayed on for, like, another fraction of a second, you would see that shark, like, flinging and, like, falling apart, and you can hear the hydraulics, Mm -hmm. like, bursting, basically, inside of there. So... I guess if you saw more of it, but even the stuff we do get, I always interpreted like, oh, the shark looks fake is like, this is a shark that is otherworldly almost. It's it is a great white. They establishes like it's it's twenty five feet long, like a sh- a great white shark would be, and all this other stuff. But this shark is almost just like this otherworldly being that resembles a shark, but it could just as easily be a demon in shark's clothing to some extent. And I think any of that fakeness just makes it feel more like this is just something from the depths of the ocean. Given, like, we, we have that thing all the time now where it's like, oh, we, we've explored only, like, 25% of the real ocean, and there's so much down in the depths that James Cameron's the only one who's ever seen it. <laughs> um, and this is one of these, like, creatures that came from the depths of the ocean or hell or whatever, and is up here just destroying people. I think that's what makes it work. It's like, it feels like it's close to a shark, but there's that uncanny valve that makes it more unsettling, like when it eats Quint. It's like, yeah. that in theory looks like a shark, but this is like a demonic entity Yeah, that kind of resembles a shark more than anything else. Yeah, I, I will say, like, the there's a shot that I really love and is, like, just a, a shot that I think, you know, looks incredible of, like, the sh- it's, it's like the shark is just underneath the water. And I think it's, I think it's when they're on the boat and you kind of see, like, Quint kind of in the foreground and the shark is in the water. And it's this incredibly menacing shot of just the shark right underneath the water, like just about to like leap out. Yeah, that that's I think where the where I was like, oh, this is still like an, a really impressive visual effect to this day. Or even like how given that sort of like we can't show the shark that much element, like it's what makes so much of the iconography work for this movie and makes mm-hmm. it so this is an overused word, but iconic. Yeah. In its own way. Of, like, the shark fin. Just, like, you know when the shark fin shows up and you hear the John Williams theme. Yeah. Which we haven't talked about that much. We'll talk about it a bit more in a second. Um, but I feel like the... Because, like, you just know the basic parameters of, like, you hear that music, you see a fin, you see any inkling of what a shark could be. And that spreads the terror. Even, like, to the degree that if you see this movie for the first time and you do see, like, the fake out that happens where the kids are there, and there is no music. You still are kind of putting that fear and that terror, but then you realize, like, oh, wait, there was no music, so of course that's not the shark. That's not what's here. Yeah. And then the shark ends up, like, appearing off to the side, and then you hear that music, and you know everything's up to shit. Like, it's a great example of, like, filmmaking 
to like really disguise like any of these imperfections and to also make this creature even more menacing than it would be if you just saw Robot Shark, who was just like right there in your face the whole time. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, like, especially when you're talking about like when when Brody is like come chum some of this shit um and you see the shark i mean like yeah that is a a perfect example of like spielberg knowing exactly when to cut and when it will look too goofy if you like keep showing it a bit but i think we should talk about the score by john williams oh is this score like at all famous or acclaimed oh yeah i'm I'm not aware i've been i haven't been aware of any of this i I think this this score apparently gets referenced a lot god yeah it is crazy how many times that's been referenced but like even like watching this movie again i i was like because obviously everyone knows the main like jaws theme but the music in sort of the rest of the film is is quite and this is the magic of like i think john williams is that he can give you that sort of dread that that like theme has like when the movie starts and you hear it you're just like oh my god this is this is terrifying but the rest of the score is like when they're on the boat and there's like this wide shot of them just like riding in the boat it's 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 almost like whimsical in that kind of john williams way and in in like kind of like adventure kind of way that i I really love it's truly a high-flying adventure yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because i think that's the big thing is i think it's weird how the main theme is so ingrained in pop culture yet i feel like the rest of the score is massively underrated yeah it's kind of weird where it's like the most celebrated theme of all time, but yet the the big like adventure swelling stuff, like when they're uh, putting the barrels on the shark, mm-hmm. and you yep. hear that like high flying sort of like adventure themes. It feels like oh, this is almost like a you know an Arrow Flynn uh, like big adventure pirate movie, basically. Yeah. At the same time, but yeah, I think that's that's a real testament to like how great the score is in this movie. Even like during the quiet moments, it has a similar effect. Where it is just like, uh, you know, like the Brody, like talking with his wife or any of these other things. The underscore works so beautifully to like illustrate all that stuff that when the shark stuff happens, you're immediately just like on edge, unease. Even like right from, we haven't talked about the opening of this fucking movie and how amazing it is. It's an incredible opening. Two skinny dippers. Yes. Yeah. Right. That, That just instantly puts you in that unease and like introduces that theme that we're talking about. But then I like that there are so many points where that theme will like be so intense and playing and like something horrible will be happening to somebody because of the shark and how it just instantly drops out. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I can't remember which death it is exactly, but there is like one of them is, is, is handled like the music just cuts out entirely and you just see the water like start to settle. And it's like really unsettling to, to watch. We mentioned the editing and the score, and those two elements, along with the sound for the movie, uh, garnered this three Oscars at the time that it came out. Um, it was also nominated for Best Picture, but lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Spielberg was very infamously resentful of not getting a Best Director nomination. Um, I'm curious, have you seen the footage of him watching the Academy Award announcements? No. In 1975? Yes. Oh my god. That's the thing. It's also my Zoom picture... Um, is of one of his buddies, Joe Spinell, um, who was there in present. There was this whole thing where was like, I think it was for Good Morning America or something, where like a crew came over and shot Steven Spielberg as he was watching like at early in the morning, watching the Academy Award announcements. Where it's like, I'm going to get nominated for Best Director. It's going to sweep all the nominations. Jaws, <laughs> biggest movie. It's going to work out. And you got 
fucking Joe Spinell, who you would know from, like, he's a great character actor from, like, the 70s and 80s. He's in, like, the Godfather movies. Um, also Maniac, one of the great sleazy 80s horror movies. Just this dude who you see instantly, you're like, oh, Italian mobster man. Yeah. <laughs> That's who that is. <laughs> he looks like an Italian um, mobster. And, like, he's wearing a suit jacket and a Jaws t-shirt for this announcement. <laughs> and there's another guy who's one of Spielberg's buddies with him. And they hear the announcement as it goes through, like, oh, um... Uh, here are the nominees, and it's like, I, I think for that one, it was uh, Milos Foreman for One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and they mentioned Fellini was nominated for one of his movies at that time, and they go through all the nominees, and Spielberg's like, I didn't get it. I didn't get the nomination. Uh, after they, they later on, they show like, oh, he got nominated for Best Picture. Joe Spinell comes up like, all right, I got a lot of things to say here. Look, it makes no sense. Like, who directed this movie? Somebody's mother? Come on. <laughs> It's so funny. <laughs> I, I will say, um, Jaws is like a phenomenal movie, but the nominees this year are pretty stacked, I have to say. Right, because you got, I know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously. So you have Fellini for Amar Cord. I believe that's how you say that. Okay. You have Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick. Right. You have Sidney Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon, and you have yeah. Robert Altman for Nashville, which is probably one of his best movies. <laughs> so I mean, look, I haven't seen the Fellini movie. I also haven't seen the Fellini movie. ones are pretty fucking stacked. They are, yeah. yeah. I've, everything I've heard is like, that was like a sort of, oh, he's getting older, this might be his last time he gets nominated kind of movies. Yeah. Kind of deals. Um, and yeah, especially the fact that Spielberg is so pissed off about, like, Fellini over me. <laughs> Just like that kind of young 28-year-old hubris kind of f- flushing out a bit. A, a very quick thing I thought of during this movie is like the... Because I keep thinking of the the scene in Fablemans when he goes to see John Ford, and you know the horizon, just that scene. And I, I kept looking at the horizons in this movie, and they're all like towards the top or towards the bottom. And I just I couldn't stop thinking about that. I thought it was funny. That's true. It's weird watching any Spielberg movie after the Fablemans. Like yeah, I've been watching the Sp- the Indiana Jones movies as well, and it's just like yep, I, I still see so much. Like it's gonna be kind of impossible to not watch a Spielberg movie and not think of, like, elements of the Fablemans. Even, like, I don't know, I'm gonna watch 1941's, like, yep, Sammy Fableman made this. That, that makes sense. God, re- gonna revisit always. Maybe it's a secret masterpiece. You know... <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen... Have you seen all the Spielberg movies? I have. I've seen all his movies. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's interesting going to some of those ones where, like, they are clearly, like, not beloved. Like, always in 1941 are the big ones to make jokes about. Yeah. But even when you watch, like, lesser... Like, Empire of the Sun's a great example of that to me. Where it's, like, not top tier Spielberg, but still, like, any director would kill to make a movie this good. Absolutely, yeah. Kind of thing. And it's just, it's alright for Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah, always 1941, I think, are his are his worst movies, in my opinion. Um, I mean, my least favorite is War Horse. Yeah, that's actually. down there. I will say, I've I've been thinking about watching it again. Part of me is like, well, it's, you know, it's a late era Spielberg shot by uh, Janice Kaminsky. Like, it can't, you know, at least it'll look good. And then, and then there are other ones that, that I just find, like, I don't know if I can I'd be curious to revisit, even though I just have the, like, the weird sort of fan culture thing around, like, a Ready Player One. I think that movie's good. And that's... Okay. Yeah. I, I. To be fair, I have the sting of I read the novel and it's one of the worst books I've ever read. Yeah, I've read like genuinely. I've read pieces of the book and I'm like, I would. This is terrible. But I think what Spielberg does with that movie is is super interesting. You know, we may talk about it someday. Put a pin in that. Who knows? We could talk about any Spielberg movie on the show at some point. Oh man. Um, who knows? Let's talk Tintin. 
Uh, it's just, you know, Tintin fucking rules. God, yeah. Tintin, so massively underrated. Um, but you know what? Let's talk a bit about this sort of... Uh, is there anything else about this, the movie that we haven't mentioned you want to shout out? Because I want to kind of talk about the, the fallout of the movie uh, to kind of close us off. But any any final things about the movie itself we haven't mentioned you want to shout out? Um, Not really. I, I, I mean, we mentioned the scene where they all, like, compare their scars. A great guys being dudes scene. Um, show me the way to go home little musical number that happens and stuff like that yeah <laughs> um, yeah I, I will I mean I guess we should touch on maybe the, the ending of the movie yes I, I think we especially with the factor of the real shark footage that shows up in here which is fascinating um, where there was a point early on like I think the first I've ever shot for the movie was shot by like an Australian couple um, who were like shark experts and all the stuff that's, like, Quint in the cage. Not, not like, the close-ups, but, like, the wide shots of, like, Quint in the cage, where it's, like, a very small cage, and there's, like, a little person in there as a double. Uh-huh. Um, and you have, like, an actual, like, giant shark come up, and it looks bigger because of the scale thing, where it's a smaller cage, a smaller person in there. And then um, the, the shark literally got caught in the top rope and, like, nearly capsized the boat that, that was attached to and it's like that shot where it's like the shark on top of the cage and like rolling around. Yeah, it's a really terrifying shot. Yep, especially because it's an actual shark who's just like in terror of like, oh my god, what's happening? I don't know, I'm trapped in here. That that shot does such a great job where like it feels like it fits perfectly in that movie because you just, it's another great example of the editing from uh, Spielberg and Verna Fields where it's like we just see enough of that to where oh it adds more like realism to the shark to some degree but also yeah. mm-hmm. just adds the other unreal layer of like oh my god this shark's like fucking destroying yeah. this boat <laughs> yeah I also I really quick I also love when Hooper is t- is trying to get Brody to go to the front of the boat to take a picture and he's like I need you in the picture for scale <laughs> yes um, but yeah, but that leads into like all the stuff where you know Quint dies and the boat caps is capsizing and Hooper's down at the bottom, which was not also a part of the original script because of like that realistic shark footage they shot in Australia. Originally, it was going to be that Hooper, as he does in the book, he dies while he's in that cage and gets like mauled to death by the shark. Hmm. But because like the shot they got was like of the cage being empty, they had Hooper just like escape briefly, and so he survives the movie. Uh, I think a wise change. I would say. Yeah. I think it works to have, like, the two of them just barely survive by the skin of their teeth. Um, and then, you know, you got the air-pressured tanks that we got exposition for uh, coming into play. And, you know, smile, you son of a bitch, and the explosion and everything, and the two of them heading out to water. I think it's just a uh, hot take, great movie, perfect ending. Yeah. It, it is, I always forget that it literally, like, is explosion cut to them, like, swimming to shore using the barrels and then the movie ends like no no messing about we're done it's the movie go home it, it's great it's a great ending yeah and like the only sort of like coda you get the epilogue is if you watch through the whole credits you see you know hooper and brody go onto shore oh really oh that's cool i never noticed that yeah that's the thing is if you, if you stick around for the credits there's an <laughs> easter egg there where the two <laughs> the post credits scene <laughs> post credits scene and then Quint shows up with an eye patch, just like, ah, here to tell you about the, the Jaws initiative. But yeah, so movie ends there. Massive success. Uh, made $476.5 million in 1970, which is... That's a lot of money. The highest grossing movie at the time, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, and then, you know, Steve's buddy George had to make his big space <sighs> Yeah, a movie. couple years later, a little movie called Star Wars comes out. To kind of close this out of, in terms of the movie discussion, how do you feel, like, not just with, you know, everyone since this created the summer blockbuster was, like, so influential with, like, all the references and stuff. What about just, like, on a more of, like, a structural level and even, like, in terms of, like, overall, like, sort of ripple effects how do you see the influence of Jaws still affecting, especially bigger blockbusters today? Um, I, I don't know much about kind of, I guess, its its ripple effect, because I would say we're so far removed from this type of blockbuster, like today we are at least. Um, but watching it, like, it's a great, like, movie, like structurally, like the first hour and some change flies by and then you're on the boat already a lot of the lessons taken from this movie have not taken the right lessons maybe but but i'm not sure what's i mean how do you feel about it well i do agree that i don't think it's necessarily as big in like the traditional kind of like big actiony blockbuster i don't think you see that as much now except for i think some of the basic things where it's like we have to raise the stakes we have to have like this kind of attack or like big scene happen at this point in the story this kind of thing structurally i think that's still like the bones are still kind of affecting modern blockbusters but i think the bigger influence you see is in a lot of horror films quite frankly even Mm -hmm. ones that aren't technically like big budget necessarily but like Every single shark movie that's come out after this has to contend with the idea of, like, we're doing another shark movie in the wake of Jaws. Yeah. How can we possibly work around that? And I think a lot of the movies where they have had sharks, the more successful ones with, like, sort of shark creatures in it, have kind of, like, taken certain lessons from Jaws, but also know when to, like, do something a bit different. Like, I would say the most successful one to me is something like The Shallows. Yeah, first one I thought of. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, which I think is, like, a great example of, like, oh, we have, like, the economics of we have one character stuck in, on this rock and all, like, the dangers and the upsetting things that happen, that, like, the limitations that put her at an unease with, like, this big giant shark, which is CG, but you don't see it a lot. And I think they reserve whenever they do show the shark off in that movie and it works. Or even my favorite example, and it's not a shark movie, but I think it's another sea creature attacking movie, uh, Alexandra Aja's Crawl. Oh, sure. Fucking rips. Great movie. If anyone has not seen Crawl, Mm -hmm. fucking great, awesome movie. That still has a lot of the tension and also establishes, like, its environment pretty well and its characters in a really decent way. And, yeah, I think that's the thing is you see it more in kind of, like, these lower, uh, I guess, lower budget horror movies that are able to, like, kind of take certain influences from Jaws, but at the same time aren't aiming to be, like, massive crowd pleasers because... Jaws knew, like, it wasn't a, trying to appeal to, like, a four-quadrant audience. It's just, let's tell this great story about this shark and these people that are trying to kill it. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. is like, a horror movie knows, like, a niche that it kind of is trying to fit. So they know, like, okay, let's kind of... We can take an influence from a Jaws in a way that fits what we're trying to aim for, but also do our own thing. And I think that's more of the influence you see. Um, or you could go the other way and do something like a movie I kind of recommend and I saw recently... Um, are you aware of what Cruel Jaws is? No, I saw that you had, like, watched it, though. <laughs> what the fuck yes. is this? <laughs> okay. Very briefly tangent on Cruel Jaws. Cruel Jaws is a movie from Bruno Mattai, who is a famous schlocky Italian filmmaker, um, who was infamous for making movies that were rip-offs of other movies, but also had literal footage stolen from these movies. And in Cruel Jaws, um, it's about this, like, um, seaside Florida 
environment it was shot in florida as well but like sort of water park area where like this dad who looks exactly like hulk hogan and his daughter <laughs> who was just who just lost the use of her legs in a car accident are trying to save their water park with like dolphins and sea otters and shit like that from a big land developer guy who's trying to destroy and make a hotel and there's a shark attack that's going on at the same time in all of this. There are literal points where Bruno Matai cuts in bits of Jaws. <laughs> like, they show at least three seconds of, like, the leg falling at one point. <laughs> I'm surprised I was able to see this on Tubi. Because, like, this feels like a movie that I believe had, like, various legal problems that prevented from getting, like, home releases for a while and shit like that. But that's a movie where they're like, you know what? We're going to do a shameless Jaws ripoff with our complete lack of money and make an incredibly funny So Bad It's Good movie. Like, there are so many points where we talked about the editing in this. There are many points where, like, a scene will be happening, and a minute before it should cut away, it cuts, and then we're at a completely different scene. Like, whoa, what's happening? Wait. A guy just got attacked by a shark, and within three frames, we're at, like, the sea park area. It's like, what? Wait, what are we doing? This makes no sense. Uh, We'd kind of recommend Cruel Jaws as, like, the fun example of a bad attempt to rip off Jones. Right. <laughs> um, and, well, and the biggest indicator of its lasting quality is a major film. Uh, Cruel Jaws. Wonderful film. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, let, let's go ahead, and we talked about this movie for so long, Brian. Let's go ahead and do um, our weekly segment we'll be doing called Between the Lines. So, Between the Lines is a segment where uh, Brian and I will recommend another film that sort of fits uh, alongside the movie we're talking about today, either as like another C for classic, sort of within the blockbuster uh, thing, or just something related to Jaws in some way. So I'll start off here, and my recommendation is another one that what I would argue would fit for C for classic blockbuster, came out in 1978, and it is the original Superman the movie from director Richard Donner. Um, now, the main reason I wanted to recommend this was maybe sort of related to a recent superhero movie. We've seen many superhero movies in the last several years, but, uh, you know, there was one fairly recently that decided to have a cameo long posthumously from Christopher Reeve that deeply upset me. Oh, boy. And I was like, you know what? Um, I don't want to... I, I, I hate that this is, like, the lasting legacy of Christopher Reeve's Superman. It's like, oh, we have him as a cameo in our big multiverse story. And spoilers, The Flash. I'm sorry. If you're one of the five people who didn't go see The Flash because you were interested but you couldn't go, or more likely, the amount of people who didn't give a shit <laughs> and made that movie bomb horribly. Um, it's a cameo from Christopher Reeve's Superman in very bad, like, deep fake CG stuff oh, that's just so gosh. upsetting to see. And it's a bummer because when you go back to the original Superman, especially in an age of, like, modern superhero movies... And you go back to that, which wasn't the first superhero movie, but was, like, the sort of first in, like, a near-modern age. Right. You forget how, like, they treat the origin story of Superman like a Greek myth. Amazing, incredibly beautiful story that goes, like, through, like, the whole origin. It feels so much like, oh, this is, like, the story of Moses. This is the Ten Commandments, but it's about a guy from a fictional planet who came down and has superpowers. And Donner treats it with, like, that amount of sincerity, but also enough, like, charm to where when Christopher Reeve gets to be, like, the the charming Superman character, you're instantly just like, I love this guy. I want to see this guy save as many people as possible. He seems like a great dude who I would love to be around. And then the mixing of, like, Margot Kidder, Lois Lane, and all this stuff. I think the movie is 80% a masterpiece. I think once it gets to, like, the sort of ending bit where you got, like, the Gene Hackman kind of, like, I'm destroying the world 
kind of element happen and becomes like a 70s disaster movie, it's not quite as interesting to me at that point, but it's more than enough for like that first, I don't know, like hour and like 50 minutes of time where it's like kind of a masterpiece still. And even though it's not my favorite Superman movie, I would say I'm one of those weirdos where my favorite Superman movie is the Richard Donner cut of Superman two. The not quite complete version of that movie that got taken away from him, I think is like a near perfect Superman movie to me. But I think the original Superman still rules, still rocks. And especially if you're so cynical about modern superhero movies, like a lot of people are, uh, this one, you know, it, it might be worth a revisit to remember when this kind of felt magical. Yeah, God, it's, I watched it for the first time, like, last year, I think. It's a long movie, like, the origin story is so long. I think Christopher Reeve as, like, Clark Kent Superman is one of the best performances in any comic book movie ever. Or there's the scene where he, like, is talking to Lois Lane and he, like, is Superman and Clark Kent. He, like, you know goes outside to the apartment and does... Yeah, I think his performance is so great. Yeah, and I'll shout out another great John Williams score. Yes, oh my gosh. Fucking honks. Incredible. rules. Yeah. Yeah. And and Gene Hackman, amazing also. Gene Hackman, Ned Beatty. (laughs) So funny in that movie. (laughs) Yes, rules. But um, what about, what's your recommendation? Yeah, so uh, I wanted to do another early Spielberg, since I've been watching a few of them, and I I went with uh, a 1971 movie he made, a TV movie he made, called Duel, which I guess is part of his kind of like, you know, he's at Universal making TV stuff, gets to make a TV movie, and it, it's a movie starring Dennis Weaver, and he's a guy who is, he's driving like home from somewhere, goes on the highway, there's a great opening scene where you you see him go from like his house in the suburbs to into the city to like rural almost like it looks like Arizona like it's in the desert and he has this like strange interaction with like a, a semi truck like a peterbilt like huge like tanker truck and then the truck tries to kill him <laughs> it it has so many of the like horror infused sensibilities that spe- like Spielberg had early on that you see in Jaws. The way it's shot, you see a lot of his taste kind of start to really form. Like, for example, the the sort of very first shot of this giant truck is like, it pans from the back wheels all the way to the right, and it creates this this really imposing uh, image of, of this huge truck. But it also is just a, a, a short, fun movie it's it's thrilling and it's 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 great to see spielberg you know very early on sort of establishing himself um already as a really great filmmaker because i think the the movie like is really great i know it hasn't it like previously was not available for like a while but i think now has become a lot more available i like rented it on like itunes but yeah, that's my other, that's my recommendation. I saw Duel originally in college, and I thought like, oh, this is an interesting kind of like early Spielberg morsel that's fascinating. I rewatched it for the first time in a while, right before I watched Jaws this time. It's like, it's been like, I don't know, over a decade. I'm curious to rewatch it. And yeah, I think Duel is just so fascinating, especially considering it was originally presented as a TV movie, and then it was expanded for theaters like internationally. Like, in Europe, it was in theaters and stuff like that. So, there's a lot of stuff that was, like, added in to give a bit more context. Like, the whole scene where he calls his wife 
was not in the original TV airing. Oh, interesting. For the like the theatrical version, yeah. It is fascinating to to watch that, considering like all the Jaws stuff, where like all of the you know the, the road chases that are going on, the the fact that this like this giant truck doesn't have like any real humanity in it. You only see like little bits and pieces of the guy who's driving and stuff like yeah. that. It just it shows even at that stage when he had not made a theatrical movie that like just this kid gets it. Yeah, this kid's got Moxie. He'll move the camera around a scene so well, and he he knows exactly like where to frame things and how to move certain actors so that they'll be in this exact you know part of the frame. It's it's incredible, and yeah, you get so much of that. And the car chases are like genuinely like thrilling to watch, like still to this day. Yep, and the big Jaws connection uh, when the shark blows up in Jaws, you hear a brief sort of faints almost roar, which is a bit of sound design taken directly from duel when the sh- when the car also like falls to its death oh there's a bit of like that that sound connection that's where i first even heard what duel was was like him referencing that like oh in the documentary i was talking about like oh this is a callback to duel I'm like what's duel i'm like 10 i don't know what this is <laughs> who's dennis weaver <laughs> um but yeah i i would definitely recommend if you've not seen duel out there it's a crucial piece of early Spielberg. It is, yeah. That kind of, like, it's another great example of, like, oh, you even see the ripple effects to Jaws and everything else afterward, if you watch that one. Um, But, yeah, just uh, to briefly repeat our titles for everybody out there, um, I recommended Superman the Movie, and Brian recommended Duel. But, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and do our outro here, wrapping up this first episode. Uh, We want to thank some people. Like, we want to thank... Burial Grid uh, for our intro and outro music. Uh, purchase their music over at burialgrid.com. Um, and thanks to uh, Michelle Kyle for our artwork. You can find her on Twitter at mishkyle96. That's M I C H K Y L E 96. And shout, uh, I love the artwork. Uh, I commissioned this on a whim recently <laughs> from her, and I'm like, hey, can you make this work? And yeah, she did a tremendous job with it, and I'm very happy with it. Yeah, it's a great artwork. And also we want to thank our supporters over on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash cinema2letter. That's cinema number two letter. Um, all of you who are from the Double Edge Double Bill show are uh, now uh, staying over, and we appreciate those who stayed. And anyone who wants to you know join back up now that we started or wants to join for the first time, there's so much content. Um, all the Double Edge Double Bill content is still going to be up there from the past, but we've recorded some recent stuff over there where the plan is over on the Patreon uh, for just $1. Uh, if you subscribe for that, you get uh, access to bonus content, um, including polls where you get to vote for at least one movie per miniseries. Like this particular episode was chosen by the patrons who picked between Star Wars and Jaws. We end up with Jaws. We'll talk about Star Wars some other day. We could do a whole miniseries devoted to Star Wars if we wanted to. We could. Especially in this modern internet climate. It'd be perfect. <laughs> Everyone would love all of our opinions about Star Wars. Um, you can um, you know, vote for polls like that, or you can also listen to bonus audio stuff that we do. We plan on doing at least one big bonus episode episode a month um we're still on the planning stages on what the big one's gonna be we're thinking of maybe a top 10 list still kind of kind of work out what the topic of that will be specifically but we have released a couple of audio reviews at the time this has come out uh where uh we've talked about very recent releases where we did across the spider-verse fairly recently and um in the time that this has come out we would have also put out one for indiana jones and the dial of destiny uh, we haven't seen as of this recording fingers crossed 
Fingers crossed. I don't know. By the time this comes out, you all would have heard our either incredible surprise or disappointment. <laughs> you'll, you'll be able to hear that uh, for just the $1. Uh, and it really helps out the show. Any of that money goes toward making the show better and making, you know, helping the show run and continue to be. So we appreciate everyone that contributes that $1. And uh, for more of us, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at, at Cinema2Letter, once again. Um, we're, I've changed all the different socials to that. Cinema2Letter, uh, number two letter. And uh, you can uh, you know, follow us there for like updates and various different little bits and pieces. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And you also do some writing over at MarianneThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. Uh, and, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, we'll have, I'm, I'm sure we'll have it linked in the, in the description. My handle is my name, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, and then D-R-A-D-E, and then the number three. So that's my at on Twitter. And then at my letterboxed is just my name. So Brian Andrade, A-N-D-R-A-D-E. Yeah. Follow me on there. And uh, for more of us, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, our great podcast network, why not listen to all the other great shows that are on here? You can also dig into the archives on our Podbean main feed for like most of the Devil Edge, Devil Bill stuff uh, is going to still be up there. You can find all of that, but uh, you'll also be able to hear all the future episodes of Cinema to the Letter over there. It still is under the Devil Edge, Devil Bill dot podbean.com thing just because i didn't want to fuck with our rss feed <laughs> for anybody else out there we will call this double h double bill production roughly i guess with cinema to the letter that's the one thing that hasn't changed um but if you want to help us out you can just uh, rate review or simply share the show around gets us more visibility and uh, you, you don't have to spend like a dollar on the patreon we understand if you just share the show around if you like it tell people about it Really appreciate it. it. Gets us more sort of uh, word in the algorithms and keeps us away from being shark bait, as it were. Hoo-ha-ha. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Another movie clearly influenced them with a shark named Bruce. Yeah. That blew my fucking mind when I was a kid when I realized, like, oh, that's a Jaws reference. That makes so much sense. You know what? Now that I think about it, that's probably the first I ever saw, like, anything of Jaws was probably Finding Nemo. Right. When the reference there, true. Makes sense. Uh, but, you know, we're at the end of the show here, Brian, so we should just tease what our next episode's going to be. Uh, next episode, we kind of mentioned it earlier in terms of, like, the rundown of what we were doing. Uh, but next time, we'll be doing our Eye for Indie, an indie blockbuster, where we'll be talking about the Blair Witch Project from 1999, which I know, Brian, is a favorite. Yes, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, also, one of the only movies I find genuinely terrifying so it's gonna be very interesting to to rewatch this but i'm excited to i'm excited to talk about it i got a lot a lot of thoughts on this movie yeah i have a very interesting kind of background with this movie as well but until then everybody it's time to say farewell and adieu to ye fair spanish ladies <laughs> <laughs>